Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, says. Smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. (laughs) Still feels weird to say that. Um, (laughs) Just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who's reached out with support and feedback for the show. Uh, Just an update, the show right now is currently available to listen on a few different platforms, including Anchor, Breaker, Google, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Amazon Music, Audible, and Spotify. Currently, it's still being processed through Apple, CastBox, and Overcast. I'm hoping that will hopefully clear some time this week. Today, I'm excited to be joined with Daniel Licklider, my supervisor at my internship site. Daniel was raised in the Rocky Mountains in a small town on the Western Slope. He attended Western Colorado University and graduated with his bachelor's degree in English in 2008. However, he found his degree was not fulfilling his need to help people. With a lot of eggs in one basket, Daniel dove headfirst into his master's degree in clinical counseling from the University of Northern Colorado and graduated in 2014. He was licensed in 2016 and started his private practice, Aspen Summit Wellness and Counseling Services, the same year. Along with dealing with general mental health issues such as depression and anxiety, Daniel specialized in LGBTQ plus studies throughout his higher education. Daniel has experienced firsthand issues and concerns which are unique to the LGBTQ plus community, knowledge which no book can teach. Because of his knowledge and experience, he is considered an expert in the field of LGBTQ plus counseling. Through Aspen Summit, Daniel has been able to provide individual mental health counseling, support in psychoeducational groups, domestic violence impact courses, and mental health and substance use assessments. I've been working under Daniel since January of this year, and I'm excited for you all to learn even just a little of what I've been fortunate enough to learn under him during that time. Let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Kareth Korak with Daniel Licklider. Oh, hey, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Josh. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good. Thanks for agreeing <laughs> to do this. You're welcome. Of um, yeah, I've been having a lot of fun um, working with you these past... I mean, it's, it's been a while now. It's been since January, mm-hmm. uh, which has yep. kind of gone by quick, at it least has. for me. I don't know about you. Yeah. Already yeah. about over just under nine months. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And still going. Yep. <laughs> well cool well um yeah like always i always just like to start by having people share their background and experience and why you chose counseling and and kind of how you got into that so if you wouldn't mind sharing yeah um so uh my name is daniel licklider i am a licensed professional counselor in the state of colorado 
I graduated from UNC with my master's in clinical counseling in 2014 and then obtained licensure in 2016. Um, I think you asked uh, how I came into counseling and I was not your traditional student. Um, I... My bachelor's degree was in English, and um, I was working in my hometown, dead-end job, just wasn't wasn't going anywhere. It was in human services, and or, or human services, not like human resources, but mm-hmm. working with developmentally, well, individuals with developmental delays, mm-hmm. and... Um, Where are you from again? Montrose, Colorado. Oh, okay. It's on the western yeah. slope. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh gosh, I remember I was out in um, the garage talking to a friend of mine who was in the counseling program um, at UNC, and we were talking about um, how I was lacking (laughs) a direction, and um, she said, well why don't you apply for the counseling program? And I remember saying, oh, that's ridiculous. (laughs) You know, my degree is in English. I know nothing about psychology. I know nothing about counseling. And um, I don't know. I think it was within nine months I'd been accepted to the program. And um, I started in May 2010. So, yeah. What was... um that experience like shifting from, you know, studying about English and and switching to a much more, you know, scientific person centered. Yeah. Kind of study. Uh, you know, like it, I mean, my English degree was in like literature, so Mm. it, it wasn't, and my minor was in philosophy. So it, a lot of what I did in my English program was analyze characters and, you know, um, Mm. and that's when, that's what still what I do is analyze characters. And, um, and then my background will in counseling, I discovered narrative theory by Michael White and uh, everything about narrative Mm -hmm. theory fit into a lot of my knowledge that I already had. And, um, so it was an easy transition. So it, it was not as challenging as I had built it up Mm -hmm. in my head to be. Yeah. I was just going to ask, you know, how you maybe incorporate some of your, your past education Mm -hmm. and knowing obviously that you, you practice from more of a narrative approach. What, what is narrative therapy to maybe explain to, um, my audience? Yeah, um, narrative therapy is essentially a, it's a cognitively based therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, it it works from the concept and idea that you know the stories that we tell have a um, powerful impact on our present, mm-hmm. and one of the core tenets is that you know that story that we tell is often impacted by a larger, larger social um, construct that we call the uh, dominant narrative. Mm-hmm. And then what you're doing in narrative therapy, well, one of the techniques that you're working on is you're helping the client reauthor some of their past events and, and um, 
helping them create that alternative um, narrative that gets away from the social social side of it. So, um, in in Michael White's book, he um, he shares an example of using the technique with a child with ADD mm-hmm. and the child is being plagued by the ADD. It, it causes a lot of harm in the, in the home. And so after they engage in various techniques, externalizing the problem, um, and then eventually reauthoring, it gets to the point where the child's able to manage his ADHD because through the externalization and the reauthoring process, he has kind of been able to separate the ADHD. So Mm. as opposed to where he was controlled by the ADHD, now he is controlling the ADHD. So it's just kind of that, that literal flip of the narrative. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, I've always been interested by narrative therapy. What, you know, just for those reasons, I mean, you know, stories are just part of everyday life, Mm -hmm. right? Um, What do you find most difficult about um, working within that, that framework? And what do you find most uh, rewarding? Yeah. So, I mean, while I very much, my, my lens is very much narrative, Mm -hmm. but my therapeutic practice is, um, I'm blanking on the integrative integrative. Yeah. Because I don't just use narrative therapy. So, Mm. um, I would say definitely one of the most beneficial aspects of narrative for me is organizing, um, my conceptualization of what is going on for the client. So, Mm. um, especially when working with LGBTQ clients and, Mm. and clients who, um, do not, meet the social norm Mm -hmm. (laughs) um narrative therapy is really beneficial because a lot of what you're doing is helping them investigate and understand where their thoughts and beliefs around a situation came from and how that impacts them Mm -hmm. and by untangling that process and and the reauthoring it it offers that clarity you know can you can you speak a little bit to why Obviously, you know, LGBTQ plus population is a, a big population that you serve here with your practice. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to why the narrative approach kind of works best for you to help conceptualize cl- with clients in, in that population and, and, and how that's really effective in working within that population? Mm. So, I mean, that, <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. Yeah. And I think it, that question is something you know we could we could do an entire dissertation on <laughs> on sure. that you know right. but i think the most simple answer is is that when you recognize that there is social social messages being received by an individual being able to help them understand that that the messages that they're telling themselves is often because of what they have been told mm-hmm. um being able to create some of that cognitive dissonance for the client, being able to help them um, utilize the tools from narrative to change their story is what is perceived at least to be beneficial. Right. Um, 
you know, I think a lot of that question is, is really something that would need to be asked of the clients, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely not an easy question to to answer in a few minutes. Um, yeah. Can you, can you speak a little bit to why you've kind of, not necessarily that you've chosen to work with this population, but maybe why, um, maybe why you really enjoy working with this population Mm. and, and what it's meant for you and, um, and why, well, I'll I'll ask that second question in a second. (laughs) Why don't you start with that? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I came out when I was 16 years old as, Mm -hmm. as, uh, gay and that, that impacted the rest of my higher education Mm -hmm. because coming out, you, um, you are the minority. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so being a gay male, I was the minority. I was at risk of, uh, discrimination in Mm -hmm. every setting. And I mean, granted this was 2003, right? So it's not even that long ago, but, um, so, Throughout undergrad, throughout grad school, all of my focus, all of my, everything that I did was from the LGBTQ point of view because that's who I am and it's impossible Mm -hmm. to separate it out. Um, A lot of clients seek me out because I identify as gay and Mm -hmm. so that's the majority of the reason the clients seek me out. Mm. Um, Because... When it ultimately comes down to it, there are certain things that no matter how much empathy a counselor has, Mm -hmm. you are not going to be able to connect. (laughs) Right. And so the experiences you receive from the coming out process, while everyone's process is a lot different, there's also a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities. And so you know, there are a lot of other similarities in general. So, you know, when talking to a client about the difficulties of dating, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, I can empathize with it because I know how challenging it is to look at your, your dating apps and, you know, well, being a gay counselor, half of your, (laughs) half of your clientele is usually, well, you know, especially in a smaller town, it's, it's impossible. (laughs) Um, but you know, so I think, I think everyone feels comfortable being around someone who can, Mm -hmm. who's been there and done that. Yeah. And, um, so my, my business has been built off of this concept of acceptance mm-hmm. and um, non-judgment. And yeah. so that's where, you know, that's what what I look for when I'm uh, interviewing my interns, um, you know, my friends. All of my life is around, mm-hmm. it, it requires that acceptance. That acceptance. Component. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you spoke to that um, idea of how clients really try to look for that connection of mm-hmm. shared experience. You know, I think that's, you know, we could apply that to other areas of mental health, things like addiction, grief, you know. Absolutely. Initially, when I was, you know, I almost didn't do my internship here, as you know, and mm-hmm. thank God that that didn't mm-hmm. happen. Um, 
but I almost worked at that grief and loss center. And, and one of the, I remember one of the questions they would ask me is they're like, well, we kind of just have to ask you, like, have you gone through something where, um, you've had to grieve and, mm-hmm. uh, have you, you know, suffered significant loss before? And cause they're saying, you know, a lot of our clients are older. A lot of our clients have had a lot of life experience and they're gonna, they're gonna challenge you. You know, they're gonna say, you know, you haven't been through what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that's something that's, um, maybe come up not as directly with, with working here, with working with, you know, members of the LGBTQ plus population, but it, it, I think it does come up indirectly. Mm-hmm. I know we've talked about it in supervision mm-hmm. and, um, definitely came up when we were doing the group, right. The transgender mm-hmm. adolescent process group I was doing. And, um, do, so, you know, do you have to have those shared experiences to be able to <laughs> counsel effectively? I mean, again, I think that's a, I think that's a philosophical debate that <laughs> we could spend an, an entire, you know, lifetime arguing and, and looking at. Um, when you look at, you know, the history of substance use counseling, for example, mm-hmm. that was primarily done by individuals who experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, though, also noted that there were a lot of issues <laughs> with that right. because... Um, whether it be the the individual's own transference or counter transference mm-hmm. or whatever the issue may be, it so so then they transitioned away from that and into the well now only professionals can do this and mm-hmm. and everything. I think I think that you know when you are working with someone that you know substance isn't their primary issue it's different because um while you may not have experienced what the process of you know coming out and what that's like and how that impacts you it doesn't mean that you can't empathize with what it's like to be bullied or what it's like to you know feel threatened um I think the simple answer is it depends. I think the more complicated answer is it depends. Yeah. And that's the, that's the answer for (laughs) most things in life. Unfortunately, most (laughs) things, at least in counseling. Yeah. Most things, it depends. Mm -hmm. Everything is situational. And, and so when supervising, you know, the interactions, you know, having two cis cisgender straight males, or at least mm-hmm. to my knowledge, identifying as as um, straight males right. working under me, the advantage is that you well, if you weren't open minded, you wouldn't be right. <laughs> you wouldn't be here. You know, yeah. um, everything from the application that i sent out to you know the interview that we did included my screening to say Mm -hmm. is this going to be safe for the clients right and so the core tenet of i think working with lgbtq Mm -hmm. clients is first of all recognizing that it's safety first right yeah um which I'm sure was probably a concern you had with me. Um, you know, I know you're a counselor and, and just a genuinely good person who, you know, tries to withhold that judgment. But 
me coming from, you know, Christian background, mm-hmm. going to the CCU, mm-hmm. uh, which I know we've talked a little bit about in yeah. those mixed experiences, but, um, but regardless, you know, having that background and I know there, obviously there is that, that clash of, um, I don't want to say it. I mean, sometimes it's values. I mean, depending on the person, but just from an institutional and religious standpoint, right. Uh, the clash between religion and, um, sexual and gender expression mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like why, why there is such divide there and, um, at least from your experience, if, if you're able to, um, <clears throat> man, that's a pretty broad question. It but. is a broad question. The majority of the issues that are experienced from our LGBTQ clients regarding that interaction is, is due to either religion or lack of education. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a theologist. I I can't speak to, you know, the, the religious aspect other than saying that religion is often used to connect people. Mm -hmm. And when the person doesn't fit in the connection, it's easy to ostracize. And so making someone an outsider, (laughs) is often why people you know seek change Mm -hmm. and um so again i think it depends Mm -hmm. it depends on it depends on multiple factors it depends you know i've met i've met a lot of individuals who are very 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 religious and very 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 accepting of um the lgbtq community and obviously i've met the opposite Mm -hmm. um the balance is always you know my beliefs are left at the door Mm -hmm. you know because it well (laughs) again with exception right sure you know like I believe that safety comes first. Mm-hmm. I believe that I don't get to determine the gender of yeah. a client. Um, You're still human. You still have values and, and right. that doesn't get, I think that's a, a misconception that, you know, we go through in our training as counselors is like, we still have to be aware of what our values are, right? And not necessarily impose those values, but just well, be aware of them in that process of, of yeah. counseling. Absolutely. Because being ignorant of your own values is ignorance <laughs> right and and potentially damaging for clients in the long run i mean if we're not Absolutely. aware of it and we let that ignorance influence sessions and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um you mentioned that you know members of the lgbtq plus population are more at risk can you speak to that a little bit like at risk for what <laughs> uh suicide um lgbtq individuals are i think number one for risk for suicide um so a lot of suicide risk substance use is Mm -hmm. another very common um issue you know which again you know, we, we could spend the entire session theorizing about it, but a lot of it comes down to 
when you think about the safe places for mm-hmm. LGBTQ, it's usually a bar. <laughs> mm. And so, you know, substance use is usually not only considered um, appropriate but necessary for for that population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, um, they even went through a period where they were their primary promoter was um, – alcohol an an alcohol company and um through one of the episodes uh, an individual came out and said you know i'm a recovering alcoholic so i can't have this substance and so they've transitioned and changed that process over time but you know there aren't safe there aren't in the high schools there aren't a lot of safe places there's Mm -hmm. the community is going to be smaller the you know especially when you're in a smaller community especially more conservative community like Greeley right there's you know you ask your students about their LGBTQ support in school a lot of them will say they don't have any Mm. um so it's not only that informal but that formal support that they don't get yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about risk for members of the LGBTQ plus population. Does that show up for you? Like, are you able to observe that where the clients you are working with are more actively suicidal, are more um, at risk for substance use, those different things? Do you see that in practice? Um, I guess the simple answer is absolutely Mm -hmm. (laughs) right. Um, you, you're, and it's equally about being aware of the risk Mm -hmm. again, right? Like without stereotyping, without putting people in, in boxes and, and expecting a certain outcome, right? I've worked with probably just as many, you know, identifying straight kids who have just as <laughs> just as serious of problems, if not mm-hmm. more serious, than the LGBTQ clients. It has a lot to do with their upbringing. It has mm-hmm. a lot to do with their parents. It has a lot to do with their general um, physical locale. Um, you'll find individuals who are in the smaller, you know, towns in Weld County are probably going to ha- come from that more conservative family where they are going to be at greater risk of suicide sure. because of lack of acceptance. Um, you know, I mean, I think in, in general substance use is because of the microculture mm-hmm. of being gay. It, it's more encouraged to engage in substance use mm-hmm. by the rest of the community, um, which is, you know, a risk in itself. And at the same time, it doesn't mean that every single kid that comes in who identifies as part of that is going to be intensely screened for substance use. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much of that has to do with setting too because i think of you know here obviously we could we could see whoever right i mean whoever wants to come in can come in and see us 
and you know i'm thinking back on my experiences and you might be able to test this too because you used to work in the jail setting mm-hmm. as well and but thinking of when i worked in the or obviously i still work in the jail mm-hmm. but working in the jail and then when i worked at the inpatient hospital like thinking back to the hospital there wasn't a week that went by where um you know we we didn't have a significant amount of uh, patients who identified as LGBTQ plus and were uh, there right. for suicidal attempts or ideation or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And um, so, I, you know, from my experience, I'm, I'm just thinking like, they, like I, I have been able to see that, you mm-hmm. know, I have seen like um, them being at a higher risk Absolutely. than some others because, because of some of those reasons we've talked about. And, yep. And, and, and speaking to the jail, you know, we, I do a lot of the, the suicide risk assessment and suicide watch and, um, and most of our, like, I'm trying to think, I don't think there's been a single, like typically I, in, in this case, I'm thinking specifically as those who identify as transgender, um, mm-hmm. cause we work with those, uh, a little bit more so just because of, you know, this concerns of housing and, and mm-hmm. trying to accommodate in, the, in those different areas in the jail and, I don't think I've worked with a single um, transgender individual who hasn't been on our suicide watch or mental health hold. And mm-hmm. and it could be because they're using so many substances. That's why they're on a mental health hold and they're just, they're right. so intoxicated or uh, they're, they're just so actively suicidal. And right. I wonder, you know, it just makes me, um, for me, I, I just see that connection, I guess mm-hmm. of, of the risk. And absolutely. Well, and at the same time, you know, I think one of the things that you have to consider and ask is, are there, is this person suicidal because of their gender mm. their, or their sexual orientation? Or are they suicidal because of how they are being treated yeah. because of it? Or are they suicidal because they are using substances because they don't know how else to deal with this? You know, I mean, right. it's, it's such a... It's, it's so it's many a layers. complex yeah. situation. And so, you know, it's it's risky to to say yeah. to to give a definitive answer right. on that. Yeah, in no means I'm glad that you kind of uh differentiated some of that. Like in no means was I trying to say like, oh, they're suicidal because they're gay Oh yeah, or, no, I understand. transgender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you I know, understand. but but yeah, like maybe how how they're being accepted because they of might that. They might be in your jail setting, you know, more than likely they're suicidal because they are in jail, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. And, and, or they are suicidal because they, um, you know, I mean, there's just so many things. So many. Um, and, And again, I think that it's important to recognize that it's it's changed, sure. you know, over because as as our society has begun to be a bit more accepting, more people are coming out, and so you're seeing different things, and and in some areas you're seeing less of that depressed depression and and suicidal ideation and everything because of the fact that. Um, you know, there's more support, more acceptance. And at the same time, um, you're also seeing an increase in, in those numbers because it's, it's being noticed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right. Where, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 
Um, Colorado was the hate state until 1996. The hate state? The hate state. What is What does that mean? Uh, uh, I'd have to check the, the exact definition, but I believe that up until 1996, there were laws in place that um, allowed the persecution of, of being gay, of oh, wow. um, what they'd call it sodomy. Um, and so up until 1996, you know, it was, you could be persecuted for that. Wow. Um, you said 96, 96. Yeah. I was born in 97. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's crazy. I I had no idea that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's intense. Yeah. So it's scary. Like, you know, this, this wasn't that long, you know, like I'm I'm young. I'm like, that was not mm -hmm. that long ago. And it's it speaks a lot to how much we have grown and in mm-hmm. such a short amount of time historically, but at the same time, like you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago. And and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna go off and say, you know, and you know, we could apply this to even other things. Like I think of like I I often you know coming from I don't even know if I I might have told you this like in the interview, but you know, growing up I was born and raised Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, I came from a Jewish background. Um, culturally and religiously uh and you know i think about the holocaust a lot but you know Mm. i've always enjoyed just learning about that and just learning that part of my background and um and i think like that was not that long ago (laughs) no you know where where so many people were being persecuted and and and, in that case too it was it was not only just jews it was also Mm -hmm. members of the lgbtq triangles yep (laughs) so many things so Yeah, support is so huge for for everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. um, why why might that be? Uh, you know, I know we've, we've talked a little bit to it, but why is that so important in connecting members of the LGBTQ plus community with positive and um, accepting support? Well. I think the same reason that, you know, a religious individual might seek a religious counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and we, we spoke about this earlier, right? That, that concept of being understood, being related to being supported and uh, support, you know, I don't know how to answer that beyond, uh, I think it's the same reason that anyone would would seek someone else, right? Yeah. You have your people of color who often feel more comfortable with a person of color mm-hmm. as their counselor. And I understand that because mm-hmm. I cannot relate to a lot of things that a person of color has gone through. Um, right. My privilege has affected me in a lot of different ways. And so... I think it's I think it's the same thing for, you know, anyone who is in a minority group. You know, you want you want people who understand you and um mm-hmm. and who, you know, ultimately are going to listen to you, right? Mm-hmm. I probably would not take on a religious client because if they came in and and you know, we're we're using all of these, you know, for them very valid reasons for their behaviors and if it was related to the concept of god i said earlier i'm not a religious individual so that's not going to be something that i'm like oh yeah you're you're right god totally made that happen Mm -hmm. that's 
that's it's gonna be hard for you to, to connect with something i yeah. can do yeah so i think that's important that you have that awareness though right mm-hmm. you can you can help still service the client by getting them to the right resources oh, and, absolutely and somebody who might be able to better and it also doesn't that. mean that you can't do that right mm-hmm. i've worked with many a person of color who have been very comfortable working with me right. and, and so it's all dependent on the counselor right and and i guess you know how much of that is speaking to um the availability of counselors uh, mm-hmm. minority counselors right counselors who do identify in the lgbtq plus mm-hmm. um community or or you know people of color yeah. or or some of those other different minorities yeah. um you know a lot of a lot of our counselors are white cisgender females mm-hmm. typically right yeah that was one of the, um, I think, when I think about, like, my admission criteria into mm-hmm. UNC, you know, I mean, uh, my education background was not very strong. I hated high school. I dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I enrolled in an alternative uh, program, and I graduated early, but then I took a year off before I went to college, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so... Again, I think that, you know, but when I applied for the program, you know, I put heavy emphasis on the areas that I knew would would bode well for me. Mm -hmm. And being male and gay were things that the program didn't have a lot Mm -hmm. of um, or any, to my knowledge, any out individuals at the time. Um, So, (laughs) you know, so I mean... um, it's often less about skill and who you are as a person that, Mm -hmm. you know, people connect with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you help maybe define some of those common terms that are used when, when discussing gender and sexuality that, uh, you know, maybe some of my audience isn't familiar with. Um, so like we look at, um, you know, things like gender expression. Like I was thinking of, um, that gingerbread, uh, the gingerbread person, gingerbread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Um, mm-hmm. it's a, a cool resource. Maybe I can find a way to link it with the show, but just kind of those different terms. I don't know if you could explain some of those. Um, you know, the, the vocabulary appears to change and, and adjust every single day, but you know, <laughs> some of the more common things that you'll, that a lot of counselors work with is, you know, gender expression versus gender identity. So gender identity is how the person identifies their gender. Um, so you might have someone with male sex organs who identifies as female. Mm -hmm. Um, However, just because they identify as female doesn't mean that they express themselves as female. Um, So expression is, you know, your outwardly appearance, your, um, your clothes, your um, hair, makeup, you know, could gender expression be the things that you enjoy doing as well things like activities hobbies i'm sure a lot of that you know Mm -hmm. fits in but you know typically when we're like referring to gender expression you know 
I, well, I mean, I don't separate out mm-hmm. um, activities as being a gender-related thing, right? So sure. I quilt. That mm-hmm. may typically be considered a female mm-hmm. activity, but it, you know, but again, that's a societal definition. Right. Well, yeah, so. I, was, I was just, you know, I was looking into more of those, like, how, how society kind of defines mm-hmm. different things. And, you know, we think of the typical, like, you know, are boys allowed to play with dolls or girls yeah. allowed to play with action figures mm-hmm. or, or things like that? Or, yeah. And I'm sure that gender expression includes part of that, sure. you know. Um, but but when you're defining gender expression, typically it's more of that physical expression, yeah. uh, physical traits and, yeah. and things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So gender expression is different than gender identity. Correct. Yeah. Which is different than sex, right? Yeah, right. Biologic sex or assigned sex at birth. Mm-hmm. The resource that you referred to earlier that has a gender-bred person, I believe it's uh, it's pronounced metrosexual.com. Mm-hmm. Um, they have so many resources that you can access that you know everything from you know the ever-changing vocabulary and and kind of the definitions to flat out noting that you know just because it's written down on the page it doesn't mean that it's what's accurate Mm -hmm. um so you know the gender-bred person for me is a tool that i use when helping clients who are telling me well i don't know how i identify to you and I, that may seem very simple, right? Like I never questioned my gender. I always knew that I was male. I very Mm. much like all of my maleness. However, it doesn't mean that I don't have more feminine expressions, Mm -hmm. um, not only in my outwardly appearance, but in my body language in, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of various things. So, um, Yeah, you're right. Gender i gender identity is not exclusive to gender expression, which sure. is not exclusive to your sex. Right. And how does you know sexual orientation um, play a role in all of this? <laughs> so you know, I think that as uh, as we are moving as a society towards general more acceptance, mm-hmm. that sexual orientation is. <laughs> different <laughs> mm. um it, it always has been different right so one's gender identity doesn't mean that they are going to be a certain way sexually um but we are we're starting to delineate the difference between sexual attraction versus romantic attraction mm-hmm. because they're not always the same so even though i identify as a gay male it doesn't mean that i may not have romantic attraction to a straight female Hmm. um you know whether or not we were to ever have sex you know Hmm. would be more defined by my sexual orientation right so my sexual interest in another individual um so so theoretically you're saying you could be you could identify as gay Mm -hmm. um sexually attracted to men but you could potentially be romantically attracted to a absolutely woman how would what would that look like um in a practical sense i don't know (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's not something that i personally experienced so you know for me my world has been you know very much a little bit more black and white Mm -hmm. and i think that if i had grown up in the same accepting well moving towards accepting culture that we're Mm -hmm. currently in you know it could have been very different Mm -hmm. um 
it could have been that I was allowed to, you know, have the crush on the female that I did in high school and it be okay because it didn't mean that I wanted to have sex with her. Mm -hmm. Where instead in high school, right, it was, you know, it was taboo. I wasn't, you know, well, not, not allowed. I wasn't encouraged to be gay mm-hmm. and have a romantic interest in a female right. partner. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of rules <laughs> to it. It's very mm-hmm. fluid and um, individualized. Everyone's a little bit mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, you know, I like that you kind of mentioned, like, both of us have always kind of known, right? And, you know, something that, like, I feel like I've been more aware of since working here is, like, you know, I've I've always identified, you know, as a cisgender um, male, attract, heterosexual male, right? Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I express myself in a feminine way, but maybe more so feminine than most. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I get a lot of comments on my style and... Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I care about how I look and, and the clothes I wear. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the, the technical term for that is what, metrosexual maybe. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've been called that before and I, I didn't even know what it meant originally. But um, but that's been something I've, that was kind of new for me initially. Mm-hmm. And um, and it is interesting, you know, there is different ways that you can express yourself. And mm-hmm. um, again, I don't necessarily see myself as expressing in a, in a fem- t- traditionally feminine way. And I like, I like style. I like mm-hmm. making sure I look nice and yep. try new things. And yeah. I don't, yeah. Which probably speaks more to your own upbringing and your own childhood than mm-hmm. it does to your sexual orientation. Right. 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 And so, you know, you'll meet individuals who are, who identify as gay or, um, non-straight and yet, you know, they will be some of the most masculine individuals mm-hmm. you, you'll ever meet, right? right? And so it's, it, everyone's an individual, sure. <laughs> is what it comes down to. Yeah. And you can't treat really anyone the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shifting tracks a little bit, can you speak to what gender dysphoria is? Hmm. Well, um, I guess it depends, you know, I mean, the DSM-5 definition is going to be different than my definition. Sure. But, you know, when I am, when I'm working with clients, gender dysphoria is when um, an individual is experiencing um, essentially dysphoria, depression, right, around their gender um, it, the DSM used to term it gender identity. Now they've switched to gender dysphoria. Um, I I don't know the reason for that change, but in general, gender dysphoria is is when that individual is realizing that they are. Um, not happy with with who they are but but not in the well related to their gender right related mm-hmm. to to how they present themselves 
um, how others interact with them, their pronouns, all of those things. So um, gender dysphoria is essentially when an individual is experiencing depressive symptom, depress, depression as a result of being that lack of congruence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how often does that come up in practice for you versus maybe those who, who do feel good about themselves. I mean, is that a common experience for those who identify in that population in terms of when they come out and, or is that more like, is that more the norm or is it not so much the norm? I mean, so, I mean, for the most part, if you were working with an individual who is coming in because they, you know, are trying to figure out who they are, then they are getting that diagnosis of gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. um, which the diagnosis is not something that I use in the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that gets put on for, for billing purposes right. and, and everything else. Insurance. Insurance, you know, even, even just, you know, like very basic glancing at a client file or record mm-hmm. and, and saying, seeing the gender dysphoria and connecting it with, with an individual being trans. Sure. Um, so I don't really use, um, that diagnosis, for any purpose other than delineating it from other clients. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, gender and sexuality is not the only thing you work with, right? Right. Um, you know, another big thing that you service here is domestic violence courses, uh, or impact courses, I'll right? Say. <laughs> yeah. Can you can you speak a little bit to like the kind of work you do with that and um, why it's needed, why it's important? So I have a contract with Department of Human Services to provide domestic violence impact, intimate partner violence, or domestic violence, as it's mm-hmm. is called here in the states, is um, an issue that's that's that plagues a lot of. Um, individuals i've i worked for five years with perkland center for psychotherapy and while i was there i worked with the um offenders specifically who were court ordered um so during Go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say Perkland. I don't know if you define what it was. Perkland is one of our treatment centers up here, working right. with um, sex offenders, and, right. and usually those are related to court-related crimes and court-ordered offenders. Right, I right. think is is the simplest way to say it. And right. um, so, it's a very specialized field that. Um, Colorado takes domestic violence very seriously. So they have their own board that manages offender um, treatment to the point where they define what your curriculum has to include, everything like that. The domestic violence impact course is, well, is intended for individuals who have, um, reported domestic violence issues that have not been um charged Mm. and so um 
it's it it was designed originally when I encountered the course the first time while I was at the other agency. It, they wanted us to present all of this information in a four hour chunk of time. Um, being when I started it, being you know a sole proprietor and and provider. It wasn't logistical for me to take on, you know, 15, 20 clients and see them for four hours every single day. That wasn't going to work. Um, And so it broke it down into um, sections and, and chapters more or less, which just cover kind of the very basic necessary information psychoeducation it's a psychoeducation course so its mm-hmm. purpose is to educate about the impacts of domestic violence right yeah. um specifically on children um but when you're doing the work it's you know you often encounter individuals who you know want to make that those changes and um can who have the capability of committing to those changes mm-hmm. as well you know kind of switching back to a little bit more of that gender and sexuality conversation um if you were to really try to simplify maybe some basic core concepts some core practices whatever it might look like um in terms of in terms of acceptance of of your own gender identity of your own gender expression sexual orientation whatever it might be um what are what are some things that you recommend with clients uh again simplifying into maybe just those really core principles of um mm-hmm. just as a way to share and, and again just provide some of that information um well, I mean, I think, Josh, that you you already identified it. It is that practice of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that acceptance comes with the empathy, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that there's often that disconnect between, um, you know, connecting one's own experience working with children or whatever else and making assumptions based off of that treatment, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that, I think my single piece of advice is don't treat, don't expect to be able to treat every case the same. Because right. just because you have a person who comes in, identifies as gay, right? You may learn and work with that person very well. You may get another person come in, coming in who also identifies as gay but that title is the only thing that connects them right like it doesn't mean that they had the same coming out process it doesn't mean that they had the same experiences it doesn't mean you know so just familiarizing yourself in general with the with lgbtq stories and Mm -hmm. and um you know practicing your own um empathy and acceptance work you know thinking about you know what would it be like if um a part on your body was wrong not not that it felt wrong was wrong right because it's it's not about feelings (laughs) right right? it is about their 
um, perception and, and, um, and so everyone's just individual. Sure. And I think that you run into, um, the most issues when you make assumptions that mm-hmm. you understand a situation when you generalize and, yeah. and stereotype and, and yeah. So I'm just really hearing like, yeah, taking the time to really learn about that person's story and their history and their experiences is, is just super important yeah, as is in, in most cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think, Admitting when you're wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. Owning, owning your own bias, owning your own yeah. privilege, owning, you know, the fact that there's no way that you're going to be able to connect with someone on every single thing. And it doesn't mean that you can't empathize with right. someone's coming out story and, and how, you know, um, how challenging it would be to have worry that, you could be disowned that you could be cut off from your family that you yeah. could be kicked out of your house that you know that the, the only thing you've ever known could all be more or less taken away from you so there's that and then there's also just the the basic tenets of empowerment which is why you know narrative works so well because the primary you know one of the one of the benefits of, you know, going through narrative and and understanding it and using it is that you are recognizing mm. that societal impact that it has on someone. So recognizing that, you know, just because my mom may have not been accepting, it doesn't mean that she's a bad person. It's because mm-hmm. she wasn't accepting because of the way she was raised and because of the tenets that she was taught and... Because of how she understands the right. idea of acceptance. Right. And so it's about that empowerment and helping that client take back some of that loss of power. Because yeah. when you're a minority, you lack power. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. What are, what are some of your own um, practices in, in, in your personal life when it comes to self-acceptance? Like, what are some things that maybe my audience can take away um, in terms of self-acceptance and, and trying to grow that on their own. Mm. <laughs> I think it gets to the point in your life where you have to separate your perceived value <laughs> um, from your actual value. And, and I think that that means essentially you have to learn to... <sighs> accept the fact that people are assholes (laughs) and accept the fact that you aren't going that it's impossible for you to change or control someone else just like you don't want to be changed or controlled and um so you know i mean my own journey is is my journey right it's it's not gonna look the same for anyone else but it was very much about well, I don't know. I I came out very differently. I came out, but when I came out, I I knew the arguments that my parents were going to have and I knew the because, you know, I thought about it differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I didn't have access to a counselor. So, um mm-hmm. 
So my experience was very much like, uh, well, if you don't like this, that's on you. (laughs) Mm. Like, uh, I don't have anything to do with that, you know, like, and so for me, it's, it's always been about the acceptance of recognizing what I, what I have power and control over and, Mm. um, what I don't. And so, you know, everyone has to take their own assessment of their own privilege of their own, um, experiences and recognize that that is not everyone else's yeah which i mean sounds so simple and yet is so difficult for so many of us right yeah i think yeah i think allowing that time and space to process and to reflect is so Mm -hmm. huge and um, i feel like if we had more of that the world might be a little bit a little bit kinder (laughs) (laughs) well i mean without you know putting too fine a point on it when you when you consider how religion impacts how other people's mm. see and believe what is right and wrong mm. um you know <laughs> one of the primary antagonists for the lgbt communicate uh community has been extremists right right and extremists are those who are unwavering on their beliefs mm-hmm. and so um <laughs> It's interesting because you, when you're working with LGBT clients, or at least when I am, I'm challenging them on, you know, (laughs) okay, so I hear that you, that you get so frustrated when someone calls you, you know, when someone mislabels your gender. And I understand how that is frustrating. And is that energy that you're that you're putting into being upset about this one person that you're never going to see again? Is that worth it? You know, is mm. is it something that is worth your while? Because are there other things that you could be doing? Because you don't need that person's validation. The only the only validation that you need at the end of the day is your own. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Well, any last final words of wisdom that you'd like to share? Don't listen to anything I said (laughs) and do your own research and, you know, just trust that, you know, there's not one right answer. Sure. Well, you know, I I do appreciate you taking the time um, out of your schedule to speak and share your your own experiences and your own story with um, with this and, yeah, and to... uh, speak speak to this very um prevalent area in life so well you're welcome josh <laughs> glad that i could help yeah <laughs> <laughs>